So have you ever visited somewhere, uh, maybe you were going away for uh, vacation, a weekend away, and you, you show up at the, the house or the condo, the, the hotel where you're staying, and, and you walk in and there's a, there's a pleasant surprise. You see a, a big bowl of delicious looking fruit, and you decide you're going to have a piece. You pick it up only to discover that it is artificial. Well, that is actually a central concern for James, uh, that our lives would not be hollow and empty, that they would not be artificial, but rather that they would be filled with, with real life bearing real fruit. Now, as, as we saw last week, uh, the way James talked about it is that true religion or genuine faith is marked by real fruit. Uh, at the end of, of chapter 1, James highlights three marks of true religion, of genuine faith. Uh, he notes that genuine faith controls the tongue. In other words, the way that we uh, speak about and, and relate to other people. A genuine faith cares for widows and orphans, uh, the, the poor, the marginalized. And genuine faith we keep ourselves from conformity to the world. In other words, we are looking to Jesus and continually growing in grace and godliness. Well, these three fruits become major themes uh, for the rest of James's letter. Uh, however, instead of launching right into these topics, uh, James begins with the seemingly insignificant issue of partiality or favoritism. And though it may only appear to be a minor issue on the surface, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew that minor issues best reveal the heart. Our text this morning is James chapter 2, uh, the first 13 verses. And before we hear this part of God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Well, Almighty God, uh, we do thank You for Your life-giving Word. And, and we come to you as those who, who desperately need uh, to, to hear and to understand, uh, to see and to believe. And so we ask now that you would awaken us, that you would open us to your word and your word to us. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. And so hear now the word of God. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised 
to all those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. And so James exhorts, show no partiality. Don't show any favoritism. And, and so clearly this is, is the central point of our passage. And so to, be, but to better help us understand uh, what, what's being said here, just three questions to consider. What are we to do? Why are we to do it? And how are we to do it? So very simply, what, why, how? And so first, what? What are we to do? Well, again, simply put, verse 1, show no partiality. Don't show any favoritism. And yet we all do it and often. And so that means that we're all tempted to just kind of write this off, to, to think that it's really not that big of a deal. But here's the scary thing, because if you pay attention to what what James is saying here, he is pointing out that, that faith and favoritism are incompatible. James is saying that showing favoritism is actually faith-denying. Now, it's important to note that James is talking about how we relate to others, okay? He's, he's not saying that we can't have a favorite soft drink or a favorite sports team you know, something like that. He, he's focused on people. He's focused on how we relate to one another. It's also important to note that the word that we translate uh, partiality, or maybe your transla translation says favoritism, uh, but the word there, it is, it is a compound word uh, based on an Old Testament phrase literally meaning to receive face. Okay, in other words, to judge simply based on appearance. And additionally, the, the word used here in verse 1, it's plural in Greek. Now, of course, that would be awkward in our, our English language to, to translate it that way. But what James is, is saying is this, show no partialities, plural. Don't show any favoritisms. And though James is about to give an illustration uh, with regard to our, our treatment of the poor, which is a central concern for him, 
Uh, what he is actually doing is he is forbidding being partial for any reason. Saying that genuine faith shows no acts of favoritism, period. And yet favoritism is all around us. Now, of course, if we are on the, the beneficial side of favoritism, it, it doesn't really bother us that much, does it? But if we are on the short end of favoritism, oh, we cry for justice. Okay, think back to when you were a kid, especially if you, you grew up with siblings, you know, and you see one of your siblings being treated more favorably. Oh, you cried foul. You were ready to take your parents to court because they are not being fair. Now, maybe you have children that accuse you now of playing favorites at times. I'm not saying that happens in my house, but it might. Because human beings, we play favorites plain and simple. Now, of course, James gives his own illustration to us, uh, verses 2 through 4. Now, the storyline, very simple. God's people have gathered uh, together probably for worship uh, in a house church. Uh, two men arrive uh, at approximately the same time. Maybe they're Christians. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're, they're visiting. Maybe they're regulars. We don't know. But what we do know is this. One is wearing fine clothes of wealth. The other is wearing shabby clothes of poverty. The rich man is given a good seat, uh, probably near the front. The poor man is told to sit on the floor, possibly near the back, out of the way. And James exhorts, don't do this. Don't even think in this way. Don't show any partiality in the way that you think, in the way that you act. Now, for us at times, it may very well be rich over poor. Again, a concern for James and one that he's going to address more directly in the second half of chapter 2. Well, here in the second paragraph of our passage, notice that James refers to the royal law. Okay, verse 8, the, the, the royal law, and then he quotes the famous Old Testament verse, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Pastor Sam Alberry points out that this particular Old Testament verse is the one verse that Jesus quoted more than any other. Jesus quoted this verse more than any other verse in the Scriptures. And then Alberry goes on to say this, it may not be going too far to claim that it was Jesus' favorite Old Testament command. It was this verse from Leviticus 19, along with verses from Deuteronomy 6, that Jesus pointed to when asked to provide an executive summary of the whole of God's law. Loving our neighbors as ourselves sums up everything God wants from the behavior of His people toward others. It is biblical ethics in a nutshell. And James calls it the royal law precisely because King Jesus himself repeatedly emphasized it. And remember James says, show no partialities, plural. No acts of favoritism, 
period. Okay, for us, maybe it's treating more favorably a Republican over a Democrat or a Democrat over a Republican, an outgoing person over a quiet one, a more educated person over someone less educated, an attractive person over a disfigured person, maybe someone older over someone younger or vice versa. Maybe someone of your own race over someone of a different race. Maybe a Presbyterian over a Baptist. Or an American over an Iraqi. Maybe a Christian over a seeker. Maybe rich over poor. Well, in places like Deuteronomy 10, Acts 10, Romans 2, uh, the Bible makes clear that God Himself shows no partiality. Okay, so so maybe some of you have this t-shirt. It's actually one of my my favorite t-shirts. Maybe you've got the bumper sticker, except I've not seen it on any of your cars, which is a good thing maybe. But it says, God loves you, but I am his favorite. God loves you, but I am his favorite. Okay, you know, and and we need to just put that t-shirt back in the closet, don't we? Take, Take the bumper sticker off. But, you know, I mean, it it really is humorous, and the reason that it is humorous is because deep down we know that it is ridiculous. Deep down, all of us know that God shows no partiality. He desires that we emulate His character by refusing to play favorites. Okay, so that's the what. Now the why. Why show no partiality? Well, of course, we just read a few moments ago James' illustration uh, where he specifically forbids uh, believers uh, from from favoring rich over poor. And and, and I want to make one quick side note, because James is not saying that, that wealth is sinful, because it isn't. Okay, rather he's concerned with, with how we treat wealth how we treat those who have it and those who don't. And also remember a moment ago, I pointed out that seemingly minor issues best reveal the heart. Well, as trivial an issue as favoritism may seem at first, James makes clear in verse 9, crystal clear, that favoritism actually breaks God's law. And so it's actually a big deal. And then in verses 10 and 11, James talks about the law as a whole. Okay, as as one commentator points out, the law was considered an interdependent whole, and any infraction constituted a breaking of the law as a whole. Okay, so maybe think about a large window. Okay, I mean, we're surrounded by large windows here, but they don't really fit my illustration very well. Because I'm thinking about large windows that have a whole lot of different window panes. In fact, at the front of my house, we've got three large windows, lots of window panes. Break one pane, and the, the window is broken. Break one command, and the law is broken. That's what James is getting at. 
And as trivial an issue as favoritism may seem, it violates each area of true religion, of genuine faith that James has just highlighted at the end of chapter 1. So if we take James' example, uh, just uh, one example that you could think of as many, but, but for James specifically, this example of rich over poor, this is what we see. Genuine faith cares for the poor, but favoritism harms them through disrespect and neglect. Genuine faith controls the tongue, but favoritism commands others to sit on the floor. A genuine faith keeps us from conformity to the world, but favoritism trusts in wealth and appearances rather than in Jesus. Favoritism trusts in wealth and appearances rather than in Jesus. In other words, favoritism is completely worldly, which means that it is completely faithless. You see, if we show partiality toward certain people uh, because they're rich or famous, have a position of privilege or, or, or whatever, then we live as if associating with them is what's going to really give our lives more meaning and purpose. Okay, so do you know what burging is? Okay, I know we live in Williamsburg. We often shorten it to the Berg. So if you said burging, you might think, hey, let's go to CW and go burging. We're just going to go explore. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about B-I-R-G, capital B-I-R-G, burging. Okay, some of you, I can see the light is going off. That probably means that you have taken an intro psych class sometime in the last 40 years because it is something that we all do. Burging, basking in reflected glory. Basking in reflected glory. And burging can be defined in this way. A self-serving cognition whereby an individual associates him or herself with a successful other so that the other's success becomes their own. Okay, a self-serving cognition whereby an individual associates him or herself with a successful other so that this other's success ends up being attributed to them. Okay, so let, let me use a, a simple, morally neutral example here. Let's just say your favorite sports team wins over the weekend. Guess what? Come Monday, you are much more likely to wear the team logo, aren't you? And you are also much more likely to use the pronoun we when talking about the win. Oh, we really showed them over the weekend, didn't we? Yeah, we, we, we snuck that one out, but we got them. Oh, we crushed them. And, and, and what we're doing is we are basking in the reflected glory of their win. Well, we do this with people as well. Why? Why do we show favoritism and treat some people better than others? Well, we do it in an attempt to grasp meaning and purpose an attempt to grasp identity. 
In other words, we do it as an attempt to grasp glory. Well, seeking glory apart from Jesus in any way is not genuine faith. And yet, and yet our deepest desire is glory. And that brings us to our final point. And so lastly, how? How can we grow in living a life of faith without favoritism? How can we do it? Well, this is what we need to do. We need to look into the mirror. We need to look into the mirror of God's Word. And of course, if you were with us last week, hopefully you remember that James likens God's Word, the Bible, to a mirror. Uh, chapter 1, verse 23. And the purpose of a mirror is to show you your face. And if your face is dirty, to show you that it's dirty. The purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. The purpose of a mirror is to drive the person who sees the dirt to the soap and water that cleans. And similarly, the purpose of God's Word is to drive the person who sees their sin to drive that person to Jesus who washes sin away. Nothing but the blood. So years ago, I heard Tim Keller put it like this. When you look into the mirror of the Bible, you're going to see two things. You're going to see that you are radically fallen due to sin, and you're going to see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in Jesus. Radically fallen, infinitely exalted. Okay, so, so on the one hand, you see that you are messed up just like everyone else which means there is no room for favoritism. Because when you get down to it, we're all on the same sinking boat. You need a Savior. The rich man needs a Savior. The poor man needs a Savior. You are radically fallen and thus in radical need of Jesus. And so then, on, on the other hand, you see that you are valued just like everyone else. And so again, there's, there's no room for favoritism. Because everyone has been created in God's image. Everyone has dignity and worth. Christ died for you. Christ died for the rich man. Christ died for the poor man. Through faith in Jesus, you are infinitely exalted because you are joined to Him in His glory. And so that, that's what we see in the mirror of God's Word. And think about, think about glory for a moment. Okay, glory points to the substance of something, how weighty it is, how much it matters. Now, from a, a temporal, worldly perspective, uh, the rich man shows his glory and what he wears. The poor man shows his lack of glory and what he wears. But of course, James is trying to get us to look at this from an, an eternal gospel perspective, where we see that it is the ultimate everlasting glory of God that truly 
matters. That matters more than any other glory. God's glory. Glory of more substance and weight than we could ever dream. The glory that we most deeply long for. In fact, the glory that you were made for. And every other attempt at glory, it, it, it's, it's like grasping the air. You get nothing. But through faith in Jesus, we are clothed in God's glory. And what does that mean? That means that you are given eternal weight. Your, your life now has eternal meaning. You really do matter. Though radically fallen in Christ, you are infinitely exalted. Through faith in Jesus, verse 1, the Lord of glory, through faith in the Lord of glory, we become, verse 5, we become rich in faith and heirs of His eternal kingdom, which He has promised to all who love Him, rich and poor alike. And so when we don't show partiality, we are able to bask in the glory of Christ. And friends, that is the only glory worth living for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, oh Jesus, you who are the eternal Lord of glory, oh, how we thank you. We thank you that you, who though rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that we, by your poverty, that we might become rich. Rich in faith, rich in righteousness, rich in love, rich in your glory. And we ask now that you would continue to shape us individually and collectively by the power and work of your Spirit that we might live by faith and love all our neighbors as ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.